You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. I don't know, four or five paragraphs recalling the story of the tradition. So he doesn't just walk up and say, hey, God doesn't live in buildings. No, he starts, okay, in the beginning when God created the heavens, here's the argument. He's, he's making his case, right? So they have a disagreement with Stephen, uh, being a Hellenistic Jew. But I love this. It says, but they, so they argued with him, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Um, I love that because they're saying, hey, we kind of disagree with the way that he's interpreting church, but what he's serving up is good. We cannot question his integrity or his spirit, right? That's when, kind of, remember when uh, Rabbi uh, Gamaliel, last week we talked about that, how he said, if what they're doing is not of God, it will fail. And if the, what they're doing is of God, then you won't be able to overthrow it. So let them, let them be. And, and you do you, and, and they, they will do them, and we will all do it for the glory of God, right? Here's, here's another way of saying that is, ah, I kind of disagree with the way that he's doing church, but you can't question his integrity, and what he's serving up is good, you know? Um, which is proof positive of, I'll say this, there's a difference between evangelism and apologetics. Evangelism is sharing your faith. Storytelling, sharing the gospel, right? <clears throat> Apologetics is defending your faith. And each has a particular role to play. But problems persist when we confuse the two. When we spend more time defending our faith rather than sharing it. Because if, if we spend most of our time with apologetics of defending our faith and not living it out and sharing it, we're building walls that protect nothing. So here, Stephen, Stephen doesn't have to dive into apologetics because what he is serving up is so good. It's kind of like when Paul says, uh, uh, kill him with kindness. That's, that's a crass paraphrase, but uh, pray for your enemies, pray for those who persecute you for, because in so doing you will heap hot coals upon their head. Right? Instead of trying to defend your position, offer up goodness, offer up what is, what is uh, uh, beautiful, and trust in its grace and beauty. If we really do believe that good is more powerful than evil, we will spend our lives offering good and trusting in that. Instead of trying to tear down everyone who has a different opinion than us. Does that make sense? Sure, why not? <laughs> we're still digesting dessert, so <laughs> that's good. All right, so evangelism versus apo- apologetics, right? If we spend most of our time doing apologetics instead of evangelism, we build walls protecting nothing because we're defending something that we haven't spent any time sharing and living into, right? Uh, I love that. Uh, they argued with him, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke, right? Love that. Um, moving on to chapter 7. Any questions about chapter 6? Seeing none, chapter 7, Stephen's speech with the council. So Stephen uh, gets into trouble uh, with the Jews. Again, it, it, it's part of that uh, is rooted in... Because at the time, the Jews were okay. There, there, wasn't, there wasn't persecution happening yet in the church. Um, well, not large-scale governmental Rome, like bringing the hammer down kind of persecution. Um, like uh, 
Gamaliel, um, or I cannot say his name, the, the chief rabbi in chapter um, 5 of Acts. Are we, are we, Gamaliel? Gamaliel? That guy. Um, it was very much, they're, they're claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, but it wasn't, they weren't yet searching out and tearing Christians out of their homes. It's about to happen, but not just yet. But Stephen gets in the hot water because he's a Hellenistic Jew and he's downplaying the role of the temple, which is what puts him on their radar, right? Uh, it says, the high priest asked him, this is chapter seven, verse one, the high priest asked him, are these things so? And Stephen replies, like 10 paragraphs of, of reasoning why, right? Um, and in short, he retells the story of the ancient Israelites. Um, let's look at a couple of quotes that he uses. Um, chapter, uh, when you get to verse 42, uh, there's a quote from Amos, chapter 5 is what he's quoting. Did, did anyone take it upon themselves to compare the quote that's in Acts with actually what Amos says in the Old Testament? That's just a fun, like, place names are a little bit different. Again, because the Old Testament that they were working with at the time was a translation of the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew. And most of our Bibles today, the Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew. So there's one less step, right? So some of the translations are a little bit different. Some of the prophecies are a little bit different, right? Uh, do, you offer, I love, um, do you offer to me slain victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness of house of Israel? No, you took along the tent of Molech and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship. So I will remove you beyond Babylon. Our ancestors held the tent, and he, and he keeps telling the story. He keeps telling the story. And this is what really gets him in hot water. If you look at verse 48, when you look at verse 48, he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. That's when they're like, oh, no, he didn't, right? That's, that's when, like, they, 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 get, they get really upset. And then he quotes Isaiah 66, which is where that quote comes from, verse 49 and 50. Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? It's very interesting. When you listen to the prophet um, um, Nathan, Nathan, who spoke with uh, David, when David was discerning on building a temple. I love this. It says, are you the one to build me a temple? And you can read that more than one way. Because God's talking about, I was, I was in the tent with the people and I traveled with them. Are you the one to build me a temple? You can either read it as, are you the one to build me a temple? No, because your son Solomon's going to do it and it's going to be a really great thing. Or you could read it as, are you going to be the one to build me a temple and screw this whole thing up by trying to centralize me in four walls? I love reading scripture uh, because sometimes it's specifically ambiguous. <laughs> love that. Are you the one to build me a temple? Hmm. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? And then, and then Stephen gets like both feet in. <laughs> you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. And then we skip down and then, and then we get to uh, the stoning of Stephen. This, verse 54 when they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. What's the importance of that, that, that language? They ground their teeth. When Jesus talked about hell, 
often Jesus said it will be the gnashing of teeth. And can you not imagine the, the hell that Stephen was experiencing when his own people rose up against him to, to kill him? But the gnashing of their teeth, right? They were grinding their teeth at him. Uh, but filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, in apocalyptic literature, we talked a little bit about that last week, it talks about the end time of Jesus coming in the clouds. At his ascension, you will see him return in the way that you saw him leave. So what does, when we talk about the end, um, what are we talking about? I, I find it very interesting. Now, this, this would probably get an F in theology, but maybe an A in preaching. Um, he sees a vision of Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, which is one of those things that we talk about that happens at the end times. Which end times? Maybe our earthly end is when we see Jesus coming in the clouds, right? Not necessarily when God wraps up the whole story, but when we are going to join God in communion. Maybe that's what we see, and maybe that's what that's alluding to. I just find that interesting. <clears throat> I'm not saying that's, full disclosure footnote, I'm not saying that's orthodox Christian teaching. I just find it a very interesting illusion of what Stephen sees, which is an, apo- an apocalyptic vision of Christ. And it's his earthly end. Right? I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears. <laughs> And with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. Foreshadowing. (laughs) That's what we call foreshadowing. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. There's great similarities between Stephen's martyrdom and Christ's crucifixion. Right? And that's on purpose, is to show how closely connected Stephen was, not originally one of the twelve, mind you, and Hellenistic Jew, mind you, was so closely in communion with Christ that even his death caused them to remember Jesus' death. It was very Christ-like. Moving on, chapter 8. Uh, this is when, alright, so Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9... Uh, with the exception of maybe Romans 5 through 8, is part of my favorite part of Scripture. And the reason being uh, is because every time I read it, I, I, I continue to be astounded at how God's grace keeps outdoing itself. And how God breaks God's own rules because of God's love for humanity. It's astounding. It's absolutely astounding. Uh, it's just one of the things like, God, what are you doing? Have you ever been in, well, I don't want to follow chase a rabbit here, but have you ever been in a situation where you're thinking, God, what are you doing? This is, this is bozo. And then you like walk through it and it's like the best thing that you've ever experienced, right? Uh, I, I said a similar prayer when we found out that we were pregnant. I'm like, Lord, what, what are you doing? You know, I mean, have you thought this through yet, Lord? <laughs> Come, I mean... You know, and then, you know, um, I mean, maybe not on a day like today, but um, (laughs) I know because this will be forever remembered on the podcast and my children will hear it. Um, No, today, it's Wednesday is just a 
just a knee-deep day of parenthood. And that's what Wednesday is. You know, just, we got ballet, we got homework, we got Bible study, we got, you know, am I, it's, I'll just say it, I'll edit it out, it's fine. Uh, uh, Christy dropped the kids, oh, so Robert has hand, foot, and mouth disease. You know, yay! You know, so there's that, you know, which is why I wasn't at the, the fantasy football draft last night. Um, that's a whole other story. But anyway, so... Um, but so when Cecilia, because Cecilia had it too, but she got like little things on her hand. It was like, no, I'm like, what is everybody complaining about? Like, this is hand foot. Oh no, so terrible. Like Robert looks like a leper. I mean, he's just like, he's got whelps on his face and his feet. He fell asleep at 3 a.m. two nights ago and he fell asleep at 1230 this last night. And so Christy dropped the kids off. I brought the kids to ballet, but my kids were in, in my office for like 20 seconds. And Annalie had fallen out of a chair, flipped the chair over. Cecilia was yelling at me because she didn't have her Gatorade that she left in the van. You know, just like, what is happening? Like, what's, why are you yelling at me for you leaving the Gatorade in the other car? Like, what's going on? You know, it's one of those days where you, you know, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's what I just, oh my God, let's go to ballet. You know, God. Um, so yeah, so Lord, are you sure? Like, wow. Have you thought this through, Lord? All right, so here we go. This is great. I love this. Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9. So it starts with, Saul approved of their killing him. Circle that, baby, because that's going to come back. <laughs> so there was uh, uh, persecution. That's, this is when pers- persecution began with Stephen. And then they said, this is dangerous because this movement is growing. Um, and then Philip. Philip, Philip, Philip. Philip goes to Samaria. And Philip, who apparently didn't know the rules, started baptizing Samaritans. You know? I mean, and if you know the history, like the Jews and Samaritans, right? They were, they were kind of like cousins. Um, and they worshiped in different places. And they didn't have, that's why Jesus, you know, the Good Samaritan story, right? He, he used uh, uh, ten lepers were healed and only one turned around and gave thanks and he was a Samaritan. Like Jesus brings this up. Like you keep not wanting to have anything to do with Samaritans, but they seem to be following, following God's law, right? Um, so Philip, who apparently didn't know the rules, went to Samaria and baptized Simon Magus, who was a magician. Uh, he took great note of the spiritual power that the disciples had. He even tried to buy it. I love that. When, when, all right, so Philip baptizes Simon Magus. And what does the church in Jerusalem do? They don't like give him a thumbs up. They don't like his Facebook status. They send Peter and John to go check it out. And understand, Peter and John, is not, they're, they're not going to Samaria to like give him a high five. They're going to like put their eyeballs on this. Like, you're doing what now? You're baptizing riffraff? You're letting in people from Shreveport into our church? Like, what are you doing? Right? So, they send, the Jerusalem church sends Peter and John to go check it out. And then again, kind of like Stephen, like people argued with Stephen, but they could not question uh, his, his spirituality and his drive. They go, and Peter's like, eh, looks good. Everything's good. He goes, well, you weren't baptized in a Trinitarian formula. You're only baptized into Jesus, so let me pour out the Holy Spirit on you. So Peter does that, like ties up that loose end, you know. Uh, but then he's like, hey, this is, uh, you know, Philip's doing good. Philip's doing all right, you know. So, and there's this kind of crack in Peter's armor, so to speak. Because Peter was all about the Jerusalem church and the temple. 
Which is why, I mean, that's why they sent Peter to go check out this Samaritan nonsense. But he comes back and says, hmm, this is all right. Because later we read that, that Peter has a vision uh, from God about all things being clean. Uh, so this is, this is kind of the beginning of Peter's journey on this. So he goes, he checks out what Philip's doing. And Peter's like, hey, this, this is all right. Um, and then Simon Magus, seeing Peter's power, says, hey, dude, like that was, that was really great. Like, can I have some of that? <laughs> and he offers to buy it. Like, I'll even give you some off the top. Like, I want that power, you know. Um, and what, what does Peter say to him? This is also really good to preach on Stewardship Sunday. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have no part or share in this, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of your. Um, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Like, wow, man, Peter needs a cookie or something. Like Peter's like, you know, you better pray to, to the Lord that He might change your heart, if possible. And it's just one of the things. Like Peter, do you not remember? Remember your own story, man. For I see that you are uh, in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may happen to me. Well, yeah, I bet so. (laughs) Now, after Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, proclaiming the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. So now Peter and John are on the Samaritan train. Like, okay, this is good. Philip helped us see the light, right? Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official in charge of uh, the treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join in. So Philip ran up to it. And heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? And I love, like, Philip must have been an extrovert. Because, like, he just, like, rolled up to the chair and said, hey, man, what's going on? Like, have you ever been in Starbucks? You're just, like, sitting there minding your own business? Like, hey, hey, what are you reading? Nothing out loud to you, my man. So, you know. Phil just like, the Lord says, go over, check, check, check it out. See what's going on in the chariot. So, so he does. He goes, uh, hey, what, what are you reading? Uh, do you understand it? Uh, and then he replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And then he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe for his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Fantastic question. Why does the eunuch ask this? Why does he ask this question? What's to prevent me from, like, there's water right there. What's to keep me from being baptized? All right, so now, this is the fun of reading scripture. In Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 1. It says 
that if your testicles have been crushed or your penis cut off, you cannot join the fellowship. You cannot go to the temple. So to answer the question, Philip could have said, well, it says right here in Deuteronomy 23, you, you can't be baptized and you cannot be a part of this. Like you can read and you can go, but you cannot be part of the fellowship. But then, turning over to Isaiah chapter 56, <laughs> verse 4 and 5. I love, this is the danger of taking stuff out of context. You've got to read the whole thing, man. Isaiah 56, verse 4 and 5. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant... I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So if, 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 you, if you take Deuteronomy, then no, he can't be baptized. What's it prevent me from being baptized? The law of Moses. Or if you take just Isaiah, yeah, there's no... I mean, if, if you do the will of God, like you're a part of the family, like no matter... No matter what, if you're doing what pleases, pleases God and, and keep the Sabbath. Because I understand, you know, the eunuch, uh, an Ethiopian eunuch, mind you, it, it almost doesn't matter what culture to which you belong in the ancient world, an Ethiopian eunuch is an outsider. Uh, a man who doesn't live by the standard definition of man. And here's a big question, what's to prevent me from, baptize, from being baptized? So Philip has a big question to answer. Does he lean into Deuteronomy? Does he lean into Isaiah? How do you do? This is the thing. So this is is the case where both sides would have a legitimate, biblically based reason for either saying yes or no to the eunuch. Some would say, well, it says clearly in Deuteronomy they cannot be a part of the fellowship. I'd say, yeah, you're right. That's what it says in Deuteronomy. You're right. But it says clearly in Isaiah that if you do the will of God, it doesn't matter if you're a eunuch or not. Uh, You're right. So here's a case where, where both sides of this divide uh, are biblically correct. And that's why I love the book of Acts, because we're seeing them in real time kind of figure this out. It could be why, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's a good point. That's why he was reading Isaiah and not Deuteronomy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right? So, um, I, I let, you know, what's to prevent me from, there's water right there. What's to keep me from being baptized? So verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stop. Apparently, Philip says, uh, nothing, uh, nothing to, to keep you from being baptized. He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. How's that for an amazing story? Right? Let's follow the roadmap for a second in terms of God's grace outdoing itself. In Act 1, we have Simon Magus, a Samaritan, who is baptized. Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. Uh, so in this first little bit of Acts chapter 8, uh, brothers are coming back together. Or, or, or cousin, fam, family who didn't like each other are coming back together. The Samaritan is baptized and welcomed. Now, in Act 2 of this story, the Ethiopian eunuch, the outcast is now baptized and welcomed. What's Act 3 going to look like if, if brothers are reconciled and now outcasts are being welcomed? What's, what could possibly happen in Acts chapter 3? <laughs> yeah, the conversion of the enemy of the church. 
the enemy is converted and welcomed and becomes a leader. God's grace is it's one of those things like, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing, Lord? This would have been all nice and tidy if we kept it in Jerusalem. And, and now, now, like, eunuchs are coming into the church. God's grace is amazing. Chapter 9. This story continues. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, Who are you? Who are you, Lord? You should underline that. Because here's a man who is spending his life persecuting something that he can't even recognize when it speaks to his face. I love that. He's persecuting Christians and Jesus himself says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, who are you? It's like, of course you don't know who Jesus is. (laughs) He can't even, here's the sermon. He can't even recognize who he's persecuting. That's how... As we learned from George Lucas, the dark side is cloudy. Right? He doesn't even recognize who he's persecuting. Have you been on Facebook lately and Twitter? Like some people are just, blah, 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 and they don't even really know what they're angry about. Ugh. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who are you? Oh, Yve. It's one of those times where I just see Jesus saying, oh, Yve, really? And I love it. He goes, I'm Jesus. That's the next verse. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Not pulling any punches there. Then the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, I bet so, because they heard the voice and saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Dark side is cloudy, right? He, now he can't see anything. He's all angry about persecuting Christians even though he didn't really know what they were about and now he can't see anything he's been blinded for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank you know, sometimes when we think about um, a Damascus Road experience we often use that language to talk about someone who's had a very powerful faithful conversion Paul's conversion had very little to do with faith he was blinded by a vision of the Lord. In other words, and I've said this from the pulpit before, and it's a bit off the cuff, and I understand that, but, you know, Paul was not on the road. He didn't kneel down and say, into my heart, into my heart, Lord Jesus. Like, my life is terrible. I need Jesus. No, he was blinded. Something like scales were on his eyes. He didn't ask Jesus into it. Jesus blinded him and said, you're going to stop, and then I'm going to tell you what to do. For three days, couldn't see anything. He neither ate nor drank. That's foreshadowing too, because it tells you, sometimes the Bible, the Bible's really bad with spoilers. He said for three days he was out sight. Like, oh, well, thanks for that. He's going to be healed in three days. Thanks for ruining the end of that story. All right, so for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, here I am. Here I am, Lord. And Jesus said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight 
And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. <laughs> I love this. I love this, this, um, this prodding of God. Ananias, I have a job for you. Uh, and I'm just, it's kind of like when you, when, um, like when you call someone uh, and I'll say, hey, uh, just letting you know, uh, I've told Johnny to expect a phone call from you. So have your phone ready because we wanted to talk about church council or whatever, right? God says, um, Ananias, I have a job for you. And by the way, he's already had a vision of you coming and healing him. So go do it. <laughs> I've already given him the vision of you coming around, right? I love that. Uh, but Ananias said, Lord, I've heard, I've heard about this man, <laughs> how much evil he has done to the saints in Jerusalem, and here has authority of the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. Uh, again, that's one of those questions, remember how I, are you, are you sure, Lord? Are you, are you sure? I, I, this is a great plan. Um, do, Lord, do you know what you're doing? Have you thought this through? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house, laid his hands on Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. You know, the the real hero of the story is Ananias, right? Uh, Ananias, I have a job for you. I need you to go lay hands on Saul. You know, the persecutor of the church. The one who approved of the stoning of Stephen. And the one who's actively looking for people like you to murder. And Ananias goes. You know, one of my Old Testament or my New Testament professors, uh, Douglas Campbell, he was from New Zealand. So he had this really great accent. And he would lecture in like tank tops because he was super fit. It's disgusting. You know, he's like 20 years older and like ripped. You know, he rides his bike everywhere, eats vegan. Like, uh. Anyway, so he's like, um, Paul was not converted on the road to Damascus. Paul was convicted on the road to Damascus. Paul was only converted when his enemy laid hands on him and healed him. That was one of his phrases. Paul was not converted on the road to Damascus. Paul was convicted on the road to Damascus. Paul was only converted when his enemy laid hands on him and healed him. What a lesson for all of us who follow Jesus. Conversion happens when enemies reconcile and heal each other. You want to see what the kingdom of God looks like? It looks like that. Paul was not converted on the road to Damascus. He was convicted on the road to Damascus. Anyway. Then Saul preaches in Damascus. It says, for, for several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Wait a minute, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked his name. Can you imagine what's going through their head? This is a guy who, who is actively seeking out Christians. And now he's saying, no, I love Jesus. Come to my house at 4 p.m. and we'll, we'll talk about Jesus. Can you imagine there? It's like you put up a sign like, um, if you have marijuana, bring it here for safe disposal. 
you know, and like all the cops come out, you know, no, I love Jesus. Yeah, come to my house. Well, we'll talk. We'll talk about it. So they're questioning his motive. They're questioning his motive. Uh, Has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, to kill Saul, to get rid of him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night so they might kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. One of the greatest gifts of the church early on, and it continues today, is our opportunity, our, our, our penchant, our talent for improvising. It's the talent that we're beginning to lose. Um, they're looking for Saul? Okay, we'll put him in a basket we'll put him over the wall. No problem. Oh, we have this thing between Hellenistic Jews and, okay, well, let's figure it out. Let's improvise. Let's figure it out. Oh, Ethiopian eunuch, you're asking me to baptize? Uh, sure. Okay, good. And improvising, adapting, changing. Because sometimes when we get into systems and we like what we're doing, we make it rigid and stagnant. And let's just keep reproducing this over and over again. That's not how the early church worked. The early church was always adapting and changing and moving and going here and going there, right? All right. Uh, Saul goes to Jerusalem uh, and talks with uh, the guys over there. Verse 36, we we jump back to Peter. And Peter does a miraculous, he brings, it's an unfortunate name, but it's a great story. He brings Dorcas uh, back to life. Right. Um, her name is, uh, well, it's Tabitha, but in Greek it is Dorcas. Uh, he brings her back to life. And again, it's to show that Peter is um, intimately connected with Christ because he's now, this, this story sounds eerily similar to the raising of Jairus' daughter in the Gospels. Uh, he brings Dorcas back to life. Let's look at chapter 10 real quick. Uh, we have about 10 minutes-ish. So Peter, Peter was in Caesarea, uh, or sorry, in Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, he stared at dot, 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 and we could talk about that. But what's, what's, what's amazing about this story is that Cornelius of the Italian guard, who is a Gentile, though he feared God and gave alms to the poor, he's now getting visions. Acts started with the believers who are with the twelve. They were getting, um, I'll say orders because I can't think of of another word. Uh, They were getting orders from God to go out and go here and do this. The believers were. And then someone like, Someone like Saul gets a vision of God. Someone who's not in the church yet. And now Cornelius is getting visions. That's why I love like in, in, in the 23rd Psalm, my cup runneth over. Like God's spirit just cannot be contained. Even Saul's getting visions. And Cornelius is getting visions. They're not even in the church yet. And they're getting visions of God. God apparently doesn't care. He's just throwing visions out and trying to change people's lives. I love that. They don't say, well, first, first you have to tithe, and then you have to come 70% of the time to worship, and then we might elect you to church council. And then we, then we, no, it's just like, I don't want to say that, that God is vomiting the Spirit everywhere, but it's just this. 
That was a terrible image. Let me, let me change that. It's like, it's like a well of living water. Is that better? Yeah. It's a well of living water that cannot be contained. And it's just bubbling over. Now even Cornelius is getting visions. God, what are you doing? Only the important people who show up all the time are supposed to get visions. And now Cornelius, now even Cornelius is getting visions. God, what are you doing? And then later, uh, Peter also gets a vision. Um, look at verse 14. Uh, so God says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have not eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Who are you to call profane what I have made clean? And I love this. This is just a little, I wrote a little note. It's just a little funny. This happened three times. And the thing was, Cornelius only needed one vision. <laughs> Apparently Peter needed three, like over and over again. I just, I just think that's funny. Like, and, and by the way, this is a great vision of a sheet coming down and God saying, uh, what I have made clean, you will not call unclean. And d- God had to do it three times until Peter, uh, Peter got it. Now, Peter was greatly puzzled. <laughs> Verse 17. Now, while Peter, Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision he had seen, Three times. Suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. So Cornelius and, and Peter uh, get together and Peter baptizes his household. And this is, is one of the first. Uh, we have the Ethiopian eunuch, but now you have Cornelius uh, also being baptized. The, 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 the sphere is growing of, of those who are in communion uh, with Christ. Um, and I love this verse uh, 45. Uh, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. So there's this awe and wonder that God is, is it God breaking God's rule or is it God bending and, and, and bubbling over the rules humanity has made in their interpretation of God? Uh, even the, the, the Jews were, were astounded that this was happening. Uh, Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Do you see, like, every time there's a sense of hierarchy, God's Holy Spirit busts it down. You know, there's, there's, there's Jews and Hellenists, you know? Nope, Holy Spirit comes in and, nope. Well, there's the believers, and then there's, like, this Ethiopian eunuch who has, nope. Holy Spirit comes in, nope. Then there's Cornelius, he's a Gentile, he's an outsider. Even Peter saying, uh, nope. How are we to shut him out when he's received? He, uh, Cornelius just had a vision, and he only needed it once. So how can we withhold baptism from someone like that? I just love it. Um, moving on, let me see here. Um, ah, yeah, let me uh, end with this uh, real quick before we go to questions. Um, this, oh, I didn't, chap, sorry, chapter, chapter 12, verse 24, so the persecution is, is going on, and uh, Herod thinks he's big and bad, uh, hierarchy, right, Herod thinks he's in charge and, and can control the world, what happens to Herod? Uh, he drops dead and he's eaten by worms, 
which is um, a, like it's a biblical way of saying like he, he really died and it wasn't good. Like that's not, this is not good. Uh, but here there's a little um, verse 24. But the word of God continued to advance and gain, uh, and, and gain adherence. Then after completing their mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem and brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. Uh, and traditionally, this is the Mark who writes the Gospel of Mark. So traditionally, John Mark, uh, or Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark is because eventually like there, there's a little Barnabas and Paul like don't quite get along. And pa- Paul is not a cuddly guy because um, <laughs> every, like, everyone he hung out with for an extended period of time <laughs> left and did something else. Uh, like he and Peter didn't get along. Eventually Barnabas leaves him. John Mark or Mark, uh, traditionally the gospel of Mark is told from Peter's memory because Mark goes to join with, with Peter. Um, at least traditionally that's the understanding of that's where Mark comes from is Mark wrote the gospel based on Peter's memory before Peter goes to Rome uh, and dies. So I do highlight that. That's when Mark appears in the story. A little connection with, with the gospels there. Thoughts, questions? Concerns? Seeing none. Um, Next week, we'll jump into Acts chapter 15, which is the Jerusalem Council. Um, And it's one of those things where, again, (laughs) Paul is such an interesting character. So they go before the church, and like Paul's Gentile mission is really taken off. And Peter's like, mm, he's doing these Gentiles. You know, it's not really, it's not really church. Uh, so James says, yeah, you can continue this Gentile mission on three stipulations. Number one, uh, you must not associate with anything polluted by idols. Number two, you must be sexually moral. And it goes undefined. Number three, you cannot eat meat with blood in it. Well, Paul's like, number three is easy. Like, that's gross. Like, we don't have to worry about number three. That's easy. Um, it's like if someone told me, like, um, you're not allowed to eat pickled beets for the rest of your life. No problem. <laughs> um, but stipulation number one, you must not be associated with anything polluted by idols. He completely ignores in Romans chapter 14. James only gives him three rules. And Peter disregards the first one. Love it. I love it. It's so great. Uh, I mean, not great breaking the rules, but just reading this of how the church had to like figure itself out as it was growing. I love to say that by year 83, we had it all figured out and like we didn't have any problems or any, any debates, any disagreements. But I hope that as we walk through the book of Acts, it gives us a blueprint of how we are to spend our shared lives together with the Holy Spirit and figuring, figuring, figuring out the gospel and how to walk with Jesus. Any final thoughts? The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your Holy Spirit that is, that is moving among us. And, and yes, Father, we are called to follow the rules, but Father, give us the courage when, when, when maybe, maybe those rules need to bend for the good of the kingdom, uh, even, especially if that sends us to places like Samaria or places where the Ethiopian eunuch is traveling or places where the Gentiles like Cornelius are or places where Saul is, Saul who is speaking threats and murder against the church. Father, give us the courage 
Not to offer apologetics, but to offer healing. To offer healing to the world in desperate need of wholeness. So pour out your spirit upon us and be with us until we meet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.